Welcome to this podcast featuring Amir Sarfati, founder and president of Behold Israel. Behold Israel provides biblical teachings through its tours, speaking events, and social media. It's also a reliable and accurate source for developments in Israel and the region. Amir's live updates and teachings are based on God's written word. Connect with Behold Israel on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Download our free app, available on Android and Apple under Behold Israel. Shalom from Qumran, the site of the finding of uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls. One of the most amazing finding in the history of modern archaeology. We're talking about definitely one of the most ancient Hebrew manuscripts, and we we can date it to about 2nd and 1st century BC, and definitely one of the most ancient um, biblical manuscript. Apart from the fact that it was in Hebrew, talking about the, the fact that we are talking about biblical um, um, writings that we found here. Now, let's try and get back in history to understand what we're talking about. The Bible, the Word of God that we're holding within our hands, it's something that uh, up until a thousand years ago, people couldn't really hold it in their hands. People could not even have it in their houses. For a person in the time of Jesus to have a whole copy of the Bible, it was impossible. The only places that might have had any copy of the entire Bible, and bear in mind in those days, it's only the Old Testament, were synagogues or the temple itself. But people could not afford such a thing. Every book had its own scroll. Every scroll was written on specific material that was enabled uh, the, the writings to be to stay there and be preserved, whether it's papyrus or a skin of an animal or anything else. But no one really owned a Bible in those days. In fact, we know that the very beginning, the first five books of Moses had to have been written by some assistant that Moses himself had. And so we're talking about more than 3,500 year old manuscript. We're talking about something phenomenal. And then of course, we come to the point where the Bible became something that the people of Israel were used to listen to. Bear in mind, this is the Word of God, and in those days, people understand what it means. It means very, very seldom do we get to stand or sit down and hear that which came directly from God, and it aims directly to us. Bear in mind also that for the people in those days, it is the prophets who hear God. It is others who hear God. But for someone to just sit and, and listen to God himself speaking through the prophet or through the fathers, this is quite incredible. This is why when we look at the book of Hebrews in chapter one, it is not to be taken so lightly that the writer of the book is writing something very significant in regards to the Word of God. It says this, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, 
has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. So God spoke to the fathers through the prophets. And now, in those days of the writing of this scroll, he spoke to all people through his son, Jesus Christ. So, first of all, the Lord would speak through specific people. And their job was to communicate that which God spoke to them to the people. And then, the Bible says, in these last days, which began 2,000 years ago, God speaks through Jesus to all people. There wasn't even one person anywhere on planet Earth that ever got to any rally of Jesus, any, any gathering of people around Jesus. Not even one person that was rejected by Jesus and was told, you're not worthy to hear the word of God. You're not worthy to hear what I have to say. God, through Christ, spoke to all people. And he made sure that we understand that these are the last days. So when we talk about the last days today, we have to remember, today we are the last hour. The last days officially began 2,000 years ago when Jesus himself came and expounded on all that was written by Moses, Psalms, and the prophets. And it's important that we understand especially nowadays with so many pastors trying to either disqualify the Old Testament from being as important as the New Testament or to even say that it is not that important for people to listen to it or to study that because it's the old and there is the new. And therefore we must understand that the Bible, predominantly the Old Testament, had been miraculously preserved so we can see and behold that which was fulfilled through Jesus himself. And when Jesus himself spoke to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, he expounded to all of them, or to the two of them, all from what? From the Old Testament. People often come to me and ask me, how can we practically and efficiently evangelize to Jewish people. And I always tell them, just don't give them John 3.16 or don't give them any verse from the New Testament because for them, this is not the Word of God. And so what is the Word of God for the people who lived here 2,000 years ago before the New Testament was ever given? It is, of course, the Bible, the Old Testament, the Torah, the Psalms and the prophets. And God had his ways in preserving his word. Mysterious ways, beautiful ways, glorious ways, and sometimes even full of humor. You see, if I would have told you that in 1947, a Jewish rabbi found in a cave ancient scrolls and they actually somehow proved the validity of the Old Testament, everyone would doubt whether it's true or not, simply because, of course, the Jew 
found it, he needs to prove that his writings are good and true and old and valid. And if a Christian would have found it, then everybody would say, of course he found it because he had to prove that Jesus indeed fulfilled the, the law and the Psalms and the prophets, as he said. So he, he kind of found it because he needed to prove something. So God in his infinite wisdom and great sense of humor sent a Muslim. And he didn't even send the most educated one. An 18-year-old Muhammad. I'm amazed, you know, Muslims have many names. God chose a Muhammad <laughs> of all people to look for one of his missing goats, not far from here, about a mile north of us, where we call it cave number one. And that missing goat did not come out of the cave when that Muhammad, Adib, just threw the rock inside. Instead, he heard a sound of broken pottery. He crawled inside the cave and he found some long, narrow jars with a beautiful lid. And he opened and he found scrolls inside wrapped with some cloth. That Muhammad took them and sold them or gave them to some guy from Bethlehem who actually was afraid that that Muhammad may have stolen them from his synagogue and returned it. And that Muhammad went back to Bethlehem and sold it to an antiquity merchant called Iskandar Kandu, we call him. Kandu, Kandu. And this man shared it with some of his priests, friends. And to make the long story short, it is November of 1947 when the Jewish archeological establishment of Israel prior to the establishment of the state of Israel, learn that there are Hebrew manuscripts found in this area by Bedouin shepherds. And these are ancient manuscripts that can easily go back to the first and the second century before Christ. That of course created great excitement. You understand that up until then, we only had one small silver piece of some Hebrew writing in, a, in a, an excerpt from the Aaronic blessing that was found in Jerusalem. And that's about sixth century BC, but that's it, few words. In ancient Hebrew, not even in, in the one you, can, you and I can understand. And it's quite amazing that we are having 2,200 year old Hebraic biblical manuscripts. And so that Eliezer Sukenik, that archeologist, somehow managed to get on a bus, cross the border. In those days, you have to understand, the British mandate was in the land of Israel. And there was a sort of a barrier between Bethlehem and, and the Arab inhabited area and the Jewish one. He crossed it, he got on the bus and he got all the way to Bethlehem and it is November 28, 1947. And on November 29, 1947, he purchased the first few scrolls. Why is it so important? Because that is the day that the United Nations voted two states for two people. 
Not to mention the fact that Arabs never said yay, but just the mere fact that on the day that the world is voting for a Jewish state, the Jews purchase their historical rights over this land. It's not 500 years old, and it's not a thousand year old. It's not even 1500 year old. It's over 2,200 years old. Way before Islam was born, way before anyone over the last 2,000 years was here. And the Jewish people are now having in their possession a few of them, not all. In fact, the most important ones are not yet in our hands. It wasn't until 1954 that the son of Eliezer Sukenik, Igael Yadin, the same archaeologist who, who, who discovered or excavated Masada, he saw on the Wall Street Journal, scrolls for sale. Little ad, scrolls for sale. Apparently one of those Assyrian priests that had in his possession some of those scrolls, four of them, of which one is the entire book of Isaiah. Wow. He knew that it can be sold to the Jewish people for good money. And it was in 1956 that the Prime Minister of Israel, Moshe Sharet, decided that Israel, the state of Israel, with donations coming from abroad, would purchase those scrolls. We did not spare a dime. We, we purchased them with more than half a million dollars. In fact, way more than one million dollars. And I want you to understand that most of the scrolls were still not in our hands. They were held by then already the Jordanians who controlled East Jerusalem and they kept them in what today is called the um, Rockefeller Museum, which then was the Museum of uh, the Palestinian Heritage. And in 1967, during the Six Days War, Israel took over, East Jerusalem took over the Rockefeller Museum and found the scrolls and had it. The only scroll that we really don't have is actually a scroll that was found here, which was written on copper, and it was a description of an ancient treasure. I mean, a description of the entire treasure was there, but it didn't say where it is. And that may explain to you the hundreds of people that walk through by this area trying to find treasure. But I want to take you back now 2,000 years to the time of Jesus. Josephus Flavius, as well as the Bible and other sources, tells us that in the time of Jesus, there were three main Jewish sects that lived in the land of Israel. The Pharisaic movement, the popular movement, most people belong to, who, which believes in a very strict interpretation of the written law. And they also believe in the oral law given to Moses on Mount Sinai. They did not believe that you can interpret the law differently in different time periods. They believe that's it. Strict, religious, and very, very um, uh, hard line. Then there were the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the descendants of the priestly families. These people are the leaders, religious leaders. Now, of course, whenever an ancient empire would control the land, they always wanted the religious leaders close to them. That's the way you can control the people. 
And I can tell you that the priests always preferred compromise rather than anything strict so they can preserve their status, preserve peace, and make it through more and more crises along the way. Priests did believe that, hey, there are no life. There's no life after death. So what we do now, that's it. So we better live in peace now because we won't have peace later. And we better adjust ourselves to the situation and the people we live under because there is no other option. So basically they say, just like uh, a lot of so socialists say today, the world is changing and we have to change ourselves and adjust ourselves to it. And they were called the Sadducees. Some say that, hey, they did not believe in the resurrection from the, the dead. Therefore, they are sad, you see. <laughs> but Josephus Flavius also mentioned another group of people. They were called the Essenes, the Essene community. By the way, the Essene community never called themselves Essenes. Others called them Essenes. They were probably descendants of priestly families who rebelled against all that corruption there. They wanted to go back to, to the real belief and the strict interpretation and the re most religious uh, 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 behavior. But they also wanted something different. They wanted a, a utopian um, type of life where the temple is completely different and, and, and everything is different. They retreated from Jerusalem at some point and they moved over here to this area right by the Dead Sea, living in peace and security, thinking that we are as far as we can get away from the corruption, away from the other priests, away from the temple. They had their own rituals, their own calendar. Everything was different. These people were dressed in white. These people baptized themselves twice daily. These people throughout the weekend were not even allowed to use the bathroom because that would defile you. These people believed that you are either born son of light or son of darkness and there is really nothing you can do about it. Probably the first Calvinist, I would say. Predestination. They actually accepted people to their community, which they called their holy community, literally by taking them and measuring their bone structure and looking at the zodiac and the day they were born and the star structure and, and determining by then and through that, whether you're a son of light or a son of darkness. And there is really nothing you can do about it. You cannot do anything about your bone structure and you cannot do anything about the date of birth, can you? That's the idea for them. And these people were crazy enough to expel any member who may have violated one of their rules. They would eat in reverent silence, only food made by their own priest from plates and cups were made right here in their own ovens here. They would ask permission to speak if they wanted to say something. If they did or say something wrong, a note in their disfavor would be written. If you have accumulated more and more of those, you'll be expelled for two weeks or two months or maybe half a year. They did not live right here. Actually, they lived all around in caves and shacks and tents. And this was their 
center where they, they studied and they wrote the scrolls and, and this is where they ate their communion meals and this is where they also uh, most likely even prepared date honey as we found a paved area with 100,000 date pits, which we believe must have been a sort of a, a factory for the date honey. And these people did not live more than 200 years. In other words, that the span of existence of that sect in Judaism was very, very, very short. Yet one has to ask himself, why is it that these people, of all people, were chosen by God to write scrolls and copy scrolls and preserve them in those caves? I always say, if God used a donkey to speak to Balaam, he can use a bunch of weirdos to preserve his word. God is not looking for perfect people to do amazing things. And God used that group of people that most of Israel never agreed with. Because they had their own calendar. They celebrated their own festivals and their own, their own days of the week or the month. But God used them. And one of the things they believe so strongly about is, is that you must preserve the word by copying the scrolls. Copying the scrolls means that they knew that what they write when it comes to the biblical manuscript is not original, that they copy so there will be a copy. Where did they copy that from? Most likely from the archive of the temple that we believe that was hidden right here in this area just prior to the destruction of the temple. Because the number of scrolls that we found here and the number of scribes that we knew that the Essenes had did not match. There has to be a very small number of scrolls that the Essenes themselves wrote. Most of the scrolls of Bible books that we found here were actually original library of the temple. And ladies and gentlemen, what I want you to understand is that prior to the destruction of the temple, which was not only the central bank of the land, but the central library also. Not only that the temple was holding the word of God, but it was also holding all the, the tree of life of so many families. How would anyone know to what tribe he belongs if it was not according the, 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 the recordings of the temple? Why do you think it was so important that Jesus would come and operate before the temple was destroyed? So there will be no dispute and no doubt that he is the lion from the tribe of Judah. He came before the archive of the temple was destroyed. Today, I know I'm the, from the tribe of Judah because my father told me that. But I don't have a document. Jesus had. It is undisputed. It is reliable. It is accurate. And it's authentic that he was from the tribe of Judah. And this is the story of the scrolls. The story of accuracy, reliability, and authenticity of the entire Bible. You see, when Jesus came and walked probably five miles away from here, he walked into the waters of the Jordan River. As John saw him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And, and Jesus came and fulfilled Isaiah 9 and Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 
uh, 53 and Isaiah 16, 61. Jesus fulfilled a book, believe it or not, that has already been written and preserved right here. The scroll that we found here, the scroll that Muhammad found here, is a scroll dated 2,200 years ago. Which means that scroll was written before Jesus came to fulfill it. Because some people say, well, you know, Jesus came and, and not really fulfilled anything. He came and did something and all the other biblical books were written after just somehow to make it look like as if he fulfilled it. No, you could have thought that until 1947, not anymore. And it was crucial that it would be found in 1947 and not later for the sake of the state of Israel to be founded on biblical ground and on original manuscript that can be not refuted. God prepared the land, God prepared the people, and God brought forth His Word. And so when the people of Israel came back to the land of Israel, the land that was dead for 2,000 years came back to life. And the people that were scattered all around the world came back to the land brought by the Lord from the ashes of the Holocaust, as Ezekiel 37 suggests. He brought them from their graves. And at the same time, God revived the Hebrew language and God brought forth back from the grave His own word. Amen. And He preserved it for 2,000 years all along in 11 different caves around this area. And it's fascinating, it's beautiful, it's amazing. You see, until we found those, the two oldest Hebrew manuscripts of the Bible, of the Old Testament, were one from 930 AD, known as the Aleppo Codex. It is basically a book that was written in Tiberias, one of the four holiest cities to the Jewish people because eventually the Sanhedrin ended up in Tiberias and all the most important Jewish rabbis were there and buried even there. In Tiberias, the 930 AD Codex, known to all of us as the Aleppo Codex, why? Because eventually that Codex moved from one Jewish community to another, ended up in the Jewish community of Aleppo in Syria and throughout the 1947 riots and persecution that that community had to go through, this Codex was gone was actually taken. It took an operation of the Hebrew, Israeli secret service to retrieve it and eventually to be brought back to the state of Israel. Unfortunately, along the way, somebody tore some of those pages. And I'm waiting for the day when on eBay, <laughs> we'll find some pages and somebody will say, this is from 1100 years ago. Uh, the other codex is the Leningrad Codex. The Leningrad man manuscript is actually from the year 1008, written in Cairo to the Jewish community there and ending up somehow in Leningrad of the time of the communists and now which is St. Petersburg, becoming one of the collection of, of a very wealthy man, and we don't have a clue how he got a hold of it. 
you know, when it comes to wealthy Russians, you don't ask questions. <laughs> and so the guy has it, it's on display, and it is phenomenal. So both the Aleppo Codex and the Leningrad, uh, these are all from not more than a thousand years ago. And you understand the excitement of people when a 2,200-year-old copy of the Old Testament had been found. In fact, all the books almost of the Bible were found here, except of the book of Esther. We, we don't know exactly why. Maybe because the name of God is not mentioned there. Maybe it didn't make it to the land from Persia at that time. But one thing for sure, it was an amazing finding. An amazing finding because I can tell you that when they brought forth the Isaiah scroll that is kept like a national treasure in a refrigerated archive, when it was brought forth to, for the 60th anniversary of the state of Israel, I want to tell you, they brought it all the way to the shrine of the book where Israel has some of the scrolls on display. And I took my own Bible and I walked into that display. I want to tell you something. I took my Isaiah and I read that Isaiah and I read my Isaiah and I read that Isaiah and I was shocked. It was identical. Then I got out and I was shocked that I was shocked. <laughs> Why in the world do I need to be shocked by the fact that the Bible, that the Lord said that is the same yesterday, today and forever, that the flower fades and the grass withers, but his word will stand forever. Why am I supposed to be so shocked when it is indeed the case. You must understand, many things change in the history. I mean, men were wearing wigs and stockings up until 400 years ago, 300 years ago, in some parts of the world even today. I mean, everything changed. I can tell you that my own children don't even know what is a cassette tape. They don't even know what Sometimes, what if a DVD is, you know, we're running so fast in technology. And I, and I need you to understand that a lot of things can change in this world. But the Word of God cannot and will not. God will not allow it to change. Not only that, let's look at uh, Psalm 12, verses 6 and 7. Psalm 12, verses 6 and 7. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver tried in furnace of earth, purified seven times. You shall keep them, O Lord. You shall preserve them from this generation forever. You see the preservation of the Word of God for generations. And then we also see in Mark chapter 13, verse 13, 31, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Everything can change, but not the word of God. In Revelation 22, verses 8 and 9, the Bible says the following thing. Now I, John, saw and heard these things, and when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. And then he said to me, see that you do not do that, for I am your fellow servant and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book. 
worship God. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in the book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book, of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life. There is a great, great judgment upon anyone who will ever touch the Word of God, whether it's adding to it, which many do, or taking away from it, which others do. The last is, of course, in 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Which means that not only that the word is preserved for all generations, and not only that even when heaven and earth will pass, his word will stand forever. And not only that you cannot add nor subtract anything from it, there is a reason for the word. It's to teach and correct and show you the way. It is the word of God that preserves us from this word. And that's why it's important that we understand that when Jesus himself came to the world, he is known as the Word, the Word of God. And He, by His preservation, He never died forever. By His preservation, by His death and resurrection, and Him being there forever and ever. This is what the Word of God is for us also. The Word of God is there for a reason. And it took for God a bunch of weirdos to put it right here for almost 2,000 years. And it also took God, one Bedouin shepherd, to find it. It took one stubborn archaeologist to purchase it. It took a government to declare that it's a national treasure. And it takes the whole world to believe it. Yes, today, everyone, have the Word, know the Word, read the Word, follow the Word, and preserve the Word. And I believe that we live in a great time of great apostasy, where the Word of God is the only thing that is left for us to hold on to. And because the Word of God is the only thing left for us to hold on to, Satan is trying to discredit the Word of God. Satan is trying, like wolves in sheep clothing, to come from inside and tell us, this is not important, that is not important, don't preach that, don't say that. It's to take away from us the only thing that matters, the only thing that is reliable, the only thing that is authentic, the only thing that is accurate the only thing that makes sense and the only thing that can change you and preserve you from this world so in these last days 
I believe that we have the responsibility to not only keep the word, but preserve the word, not only for the sake of those who are before us, but more so for the sakes, for the sake of those that are ahead of us. For the sake of those in the future, our own children. And I want to encourage you that heaven and earth shall pass, but this word will not. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will trust in the name of the Lord and in the word of the Lord. This word and all that is in it, if I may just quote Joshua chapter 1, I would like to wrap it up with the words of Joshua as he was about to lead the children of Israel into the land of Israel. And he says this in verse 6, Be strong and of good courage, for to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left that you may prosper wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for listening to this podcast featuring Amir Sarfati, founder and president of Behold Israel. Connect with Behold Israel on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Download our free app available on Android and Apple under Behold Israel. Amir's teachings can be found in multiple languages. You can also visit our website, beholdisrael.org.